Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. I am recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness. That is what this brand, this podcast is all about. And today I'm going to continue that with a discussion of my first experience with ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. So as I'm sure many of you have heard, um, ayahuasca made its way to the States, um, you know, many years ago, um, it's sort of become a, I don't want to say, I don't want to say it has a cult following, but I guess you would say it does have a cult following. Um, it's no longer something that is, you know, hidden behind ceremonial, uh, dark doors in the Amazon anymore. It has been brought to the States and, uh, the shamanic tradition is actually being continued here by people who have trained with the maestros of South America. So ayahuasca was originally encountered by white settlers or Europeans back in the 1600s, somewhere around in there. This has been, this, this particular plant medicine has been used for centuries and centuries and centuries in tribal cultures, uh, used to, um, expel, you know, dark spirits to expel, um, uh, bad memory to expel anything that might be perceived as negative and holding you back. And in the modern culture that we're living in today, so we've got everything in the world materialistically, and we're learning that, you know, people who live in the Western world and who have these things aren't necessarily living happy lives. And so I think the resurgence, or not really resurgence, but the emergence of ayahuasca really comes down to the fact that people are still seeking, right? They've come to this place where, oh, well, I've got a nice house, I've got a nice car, I'm in a good relationship, whatever the case may be, but I'm still not happy. I still don't have, you know, a bead on the things that I want to create in life, right? And this is something that we've been, as a culture and as a society and group of people, well aware of for many, many years, which of course sparked the personal development revolution that sort of came about starting in the fifties with people like Earl Nightingale and, you know, him putting out this, you know, at that time, the record called the strangest secret. And you can go back and you can actually listen to this on YouTube and you can hear Earl Nightingale talking about personal development concepts, um, you know, 70, 80 years ago. And, you know, of course, Napoleon Hill was before that, but at the end of the day, this idea that there's something more, that there's something outside of the material, there's something, you know, to be said for creating happiness and joy in our lives. I think people are drawn to ayahuasca as a means of sort of identifying what aspects of their lives may or may not be holding them back in some realm or some aspect of what it is that they're experiencing. And so for me personally, a good friend of mine, who is very deep into plant medicines and has been for quite some time. I met with him. Uh, his name's Michael Roviello. He's, he's here in the Valley. Uh, he's uh, go back and listen to, I forget which episodes, but uh, I think it's in the twenties. Uh, there's a part one and a part two where he tells his story, um, you know, all the way from childhood through today and through opening a center that specializes in alternative wellness methods. So be sure and check that out. And that'll give you a little bit more context for this. But that is sort of my introduction to uh, the ayahuasca world. And Michael and I reconnected at a Wim Hof seminar. So we're talking about cold training, again, using nat natural techniques 
to strengthen the body, to strengthen the mind. And we got to talking about his journey around plant medicines. And so we met one day at a local coffee shop and uh, I sat back and uh, watched him drink coffee because I don't do that. And we had a great conversation uh, around his experience and some of the things that he's been up to. And he credited a lot of his sort of awakening and I guess you'd say um, expansion to participating in plant medicine ceremonies. Um, In fact, he had been to South America, Brazil, and had experienced the real deal, you know, in the actual context of the culture, which has been using plant medicines for, you know, like I said, centuries, thousands of years, possibly. And um, so we got to talking about this. And in my way of viewing um, drug use, and I'm going to use drug use because the active ingredient in ayahuasca is DMT. So I'm referring, when I say drug use, I'm referring to the, to the drug DMT. And that's in no way meant to, you know, disrespect the plant ceremony in and of itself. So if you're in that circle and you hear me say drug, I'm referring to DMT um, and the plant medicine side of things I totally get has a strong connotation to ceremony and tradition. And this conversation in no way is meant to cheapen that. So um, coming from my background, coming from, you know, a fairly conservative area, a fairly conservative household you know, where not even alcohol was allowed in the house, you know, my only experience with any sort of drug was basically alcohol. And, you know, so for me, uh, this was something that I'd never even consider at any time someone would would bring up this idea of drugs, um, hallucinogenic or otherwise, you know, I was immediately checked out because it was just something that I would just say, well, you know, that's not who I am. I don't really see a need in that. But um, after having this conversation with Michael, I was sort of tempted to, to look into this deeper because of the way it was framed. Okay. So framing matters, guys, it matters tremendously. And in conversation, framing matters to the nth degree there, it can't be stressed, um, you know, how important it is to frame an idea so that someone can actually receive it. And in the course of the conversation, we were talking about the tradition, um, I was learning about, you know, the combination of plant and vine or leaf and vine uh, to create the brew, which is a tea. I was learning about um, the tribe, the tribal use, um, the purpose, uh, learning about the ceremony, um, how it's part of a religious experience, ceremonial experience, and also learning about what they call the purge, which is a lot of times when people consume ayahuasca, um, they do, in fact, throw up and it's it's, I would call it retching. It's pretty severe in a lot of cases. Um, it could also create diarrhea depending on, you know, how your body particularly responds to the drinking of the substances. It's, you know, most people consider it to be very unpleasant. And, and I'll tell you a little bit about my experience when we get to that point. But the way this was framed to me was, you know, it's not like you got a bunch of guys sitting around a table in, in their mom's basement, you know, smoking a joint and getting high, this is a bunch of people coming together to basically create purpose around their lives, right? To create some, some form of expansion, to understand what it is about themselves that may or may not be holding them back in their everyday life, right? And so this spoke to me because it's work and anything worthwhile in life requires work. It can't be given to you for free. And when it's framed this way, that's the way I needed to hear it. That's the way I needed to understand it for me to take a step 
and take a closer look at what the possibility of using or consuming ayahuasca may or may not uh, do for me personally, may or may not be of benefit for me or the, or those I come in contact with. So because of the way it was framed, because of the fact that, listen, there's no such thing as free here. You know, this isn't about getting high. This is about self-exploration. Um, I went there and this was right in line with everything that I'm about as an individual. So for those of you who do know me personally, um, you'll know that, you know, I might have, uh, you know, something to drink. I might have alcohol like once or twice, you know, in a three to six month period. I just don't put, uh, anything in my body that I feel could be a contaminant of any sort, you know, unless it's some form of, of tempting dark chocolate, which I guess could be considered healthy, healthy, depending on who you talk to. So at the end of the day, um, for me, this had to make sense. It had to be something that could be useful in terms of expansion. And it had to be something that I could see of benefit of in terms of creating new outcomes for me in the future. So coming from my background, I got involved in the personal development world heavily back in 2008. Uh, My first personal development exposure was moving to Arizona in the early 2000s, 2000, 2001. And then the first book I picked up that actually changed the way that I started to look at success or expansion was one in terms of finances. And that was Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that book changed the way that I looked at um, resources. It changed the way I looked at creating wealth and changed the way I looked at creating money. And since that time, I picked up every one of his books, consumed them all, expanded into other people, you know, your Peter Schiff's. Um, and, um, you know, people like that, people like Jim Rogers, um, you know, people like, you know, the Warren Buffett's of the world, all of the people who've created some sort of financial expansion. I went down that route for a good, I don't know, six or eight years. And then it would be around 2008 that I would be invited into uh, a Psy basic seminar. And so to give you an idea of my frame of mind at this point, um, along my path and along my journey. The only reason I ended up going to Psy Basic or PSI's basic seminar is I got a phone call from a buddy's mother who was playing Psy's 90 day challenge, which is called PLD. She was playing PLD. And a component of PLD is that you need to enroll people into the basic. In other words, you need to spread the word. And so she had invited me to a presentation it was, I think like 600 bucks to go. And I'm like, you know what, this is, this is not for me. You know, 600 bucks is just too much money to spend on something to go sit in a room full of broken people. And that was how I looked at it. Right. I looked at like other people were broken and I had no problems. And, uh, so, but I got a call from her a couple of weeks later and for some reason, for whatever reason, I was able to get myself and my significant other into the seminar at the time on a two for one. So for 600 bucks, we could both go. So even, um, in my state of living in lack right at this place of, you know, well, that's just too much money. I couldn't turn down this idea that, you know what, I could just get a deal. This is a deal, right? And I had to take advantage of a deal. So even the scarcity program that was running me, you know, saw that as a, as a benefit. And in fact, the scarcity program probably helped me in that moment because I was tempted the first time I saw it. And when the deal came along, it was something that was just, I would have been stupid to pass it up. So I attended that seminar with who would become my ex. 
That seminar revealed that we were very different people. And shortly thereafter, we decided to part ways uh, for a multitude of reasons. And, you know, had I been the man that I thought I was then, I would have already ended that relationship because it was a piss poor relationship. We were basically roommates and nothing good was coming of it. It was going nowhere. So it was a benefit that it ended. And um, that led me into the next level of seminar, which I think I spent like, I don't know, like 4,800 bucks on plus another, I don't know, probably $1,500 in travel and food. That led me into the next seminar, which was men's leadership, which is 11 day seminar in Northern California with a bunch of guys isolated on a ranch. And that one was another, you know, five grand with another, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars in travel costs. And then that led me to, at the time, what was called Principia, which was another like 5,500 bucks plus travel. And so the whole, the whole thing, once, once I understood how important it was for me to work on me, and once I understood that I didn't have all the answers, and once I understood that, you know what, I don't even, I don't even have a clue of how I'm showing up in a lot of situations. It made it really easy for me to open up my wallet and say, look, you know what, I'm choosing into this and I want to see what it is about me that I can improve, what it is about me that's holding me back. Because, you know, the, the alternative is to play victim and blame your situation and your station on the rest of the world. You know, I can't earn money because so-and-so, right. Or I can't be in a relationship because so-and-so did X. I can't have a happy day because my boss said some shitty comment to me, right? Like, so the victimhood mentality that runs most people, and was in fact running me that I couldn't even see it. This was just an eye-opening thing that told me that I needed to start looking internally. And so uh, at the end of 08, the first seminar was at the end of 08. And then I spent all of 09 going through the remainder of those seminars. And then every year since I've done some sort of development work, whether it was Tony Robbins or a business seminar, um, you know, courses, um, uh, you know, like uh, uh, video trainings, you name the guru, you know, you name the online trainer. I've probably had one of their courses, if not more so. Um, and I've probably spent, you know, multiple six figures at this point on just training myself to step into the person that I feel like I'm capable of stepping into. And the one thing that I've learned through all of this is there's two types of people who go through this scenario. Um, they, they're called from one group of seekers, right? So you have two groups in the population. One group is seekers. One group are, are, are going to like, just take it. They're just there. They're taking up space and they're just going to take life as it comes. Whatever comes their way is good. I like to call it. These people are just content. You have the content and you have the seekers. And then of the seekers, you have two types. The seekers go into these seminars and these events and they go into these seminars and events and come out and either do the work or they don't. And of the people who do the work, even after going and paying all this money and spending all this time and energy, I find that the number of people who actually put the work to use is very, very, very small, very small. In fact, this is one of my big hangups with the personal development world. And I could talk about this for hours, but the reality is that, um, my experience of the seminar world is you have people who like to hang out there and they hang out there because it's easy to hang out there. Um, you can go to a seminar and you can sort of, you know, forget yourself because you're there, you're helping other people. And there's a great energy that comes with helping other people. There's a great feeling that comes with helping other people. 
And it's easy to be in that environment because everyone in that environment is in the same mindset. They're in the same energy. They're in this place of all is good, all can be improved. And the reality is that once you leave that space, everything changes. So the challenge is to carry the tools into a space that's not as friendly to the tools that you just studied about. And uh, my experience has been that the vast majority of people who go into that place either stay in that space practicing within a safe space or practicing within the safe area of the seminar itself, or they come out and they don't really apply what it is that they've learned. So my whole thing has been about application. And I'm not saying that like I'm some, you know, you know, some sort of model of perfection because I'm not, I'm saying this because this is something that I make an effort to do every day and something that after attending some seminars with warrior or wake up warrior, some of you guys, I'm sure are familiar with Garrett White's group, I learned how to start gauging it. Right. So for the longest time I had the tools and I had the ability to put them to use, but I wasn't sure how to gauge them. I had no daily routine or no morning routine no context with which to apply the tools that I was comfortable with and understood. And from that place, you know, my results were very small. But what I learned was when I started tracking everything, right? When I started reporting back to myself how I was showing up and I knew how to do that, then my results constantly changed incrementally for the better. So we're not talking about you know, some drastic change overnight. But what we're talking about doing is taking steps toward betterment every single day, tracking toward betterment every single day. And this doesn't mean that every single day I win. It just means that every single day I have a gauge, right? I'm looking at my results. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from Thomas Wilhite, who founded PSI seminars or SI seminars. And he said that there's no greater way to gauge a man than by results often harsh, but always fair. And the world that we live in today has gotten away from this entirely because we have to babysit people's feelings and dance around people's emotions and step in other people's bullshit because they can't handle the fact that, you know what, they didn't produce or they didn't create the result that they said they were going to do or they didn't keep their word. And we all do this. I'm not blaming and I'm not projecting. I understand that I'm guilty of it. You know, I can't, and it, and it comes down to even the littlest things, right? So like if I say, if I say I'm going to show up for lunch at 1230 and I show up at 1231, then I've broken my word. I didn't keep my word, right? It can be something that small. And in the reality of life, we just see that as nothing. Ah, it's no big deal. It's one minute. Who gives a shit? But the reality of it is, is we broke our word, not only to the person that we were supposed to meet, and they will remember that no matter how small. We broke our word to ourselves, and that matters more, right? We broke a commitment to ourselves, and that matters more because we self-signaled that we weren't the person that we wanted to be. And this is a huge component of development. So in this context, and sharing this little bit of background, um, and sharing this little bit of my journey from going from, you know, this, this sort of small-minded kid from rural Georgia to a guy who has a little bit of money in the bank, a marriage that's going well in multiple rental properties and multiple businesses. And, you know, I'm telling you this because I feel like this is something that would not have been a part of my life had I not taken a moment to examine my life and realize, you know, where I was showing up as basically a POS. And 
not examine my life and realize where I wasn't creating results. And to this day, I mean, I just had a conversation with wifey yesterday, again, just living in humility, right? Like I'm not where I want to be in terms of creating income at this point in my life. Right. And I just had a conversation with wifey, like I said, yesterday or the day before we were having a conversation around doing the work, like, and what that looks like doing the work and, you know, living in that space of, of measuring the results and not offering excuses to one another, but offering results to one another, you know, and having this open dialogue around what it's going to take, you know, to create the marriage that we want to create, what it's going to take to create the financial situation that we want to create, what it's going to take to create the overarching theme of our relationship, which for us is freedom, right? Not really concerned about sitting on millions and millions of dollars, but what I would like to be sitting on is enough assets that they provide a comfortable lifestyle for wifey and I, so that when we wake up in the morning, we can live in purpose and we can work on things we choose to work on. Right. So that idea of wealth, wealth buys us freedom and that freedom can be used to step into our best best selves, or it could be used to, you know, waste your days watching Netflix. For us, we want to step into our best selves to, to the highest degree possible. And in order for us to do that, we have to continue to expand. And so I share this story just to kind of let you guys know, you know, where I come from, you know, I didn't always exist as this person. And I hope that a year from now, I'll be a very different person. And two years from there, I'll be even more different person. Hopefully that person will continue to expand and grow. That is my target and my goal as an individual. And, uh, from this context, I viewed this idea of looking into ayahuasca as another venue, like another way of taking a shot at seeing what is possible, like taking a look at myself, looking at my results and saying, okay, well, my results are good, but good is the enemy of great. And so what do I want to do to step into the next level? What am, what am I not seeing about myself? What am I missing? What do I need to step into to elevate uh, my existence that much more. And so <clears throat> having done, you know, quite a bit of personal development work, reading meditation, I felt like this was the logical next step. And again, the way it was presented to me made it sort of easily palatable for someone like myself, who's never been involved with any form of plant medicine or drug or anything like that. And so this is the story guys of me jumping into that world. And I'm just going to take you through step by step. Um, I know a lot of people are curious about it. If you've got questions about it, be sure and comment or uh, shoot me a message and let me know and I'll answer them uh, as quickly as I can. So what exactly is ayahuasca itself? How was it created? Okay, so ayahuasca is actually a vine um, and ayahuasca is also the name for the drink or the ceremony. But the, the actual drink that you will imbibe is made from two plants. So you're going to have the leaves from the chacruna plant, which is going, which are going to contain the DMT as many leafy uh, green plants do. And some animals, as I mentioned earlier, the DMT, although present can't be activated without the presence of the vine. So what normally happens when you consume plant with uh, DMT inside it is the stomach enzymes actually break it down before it can get into your bloodstream. So the vine actually prevents that from happening. And it allows the DMT to survive 
get into your bloodstream and cross the blood brain barrier, which in turn is going to give you the effect of the drug itself. So that's what you're looking at consuming. So if you're curious at all about what's actually in the tea that you would drink at an ayahuasca ceremony, that is uh, what you need to go and uh, consult Dr. Google with. And you'll find tons and tons of information. In fact, there are actually quite a few documentaries out on ayahuasca right now, which I think are probably to a large degree, the reason it has caught on so heavily in, you know, Western culture. But, um, check that out, look that up. If that's something that you're, you're curious about and you can find all the information there. So here locally in Arizona, we're lucky because we have like a pretty strong contingent of, you know, like, of ayahuasca, um, ceremonies and circles kind of existing underneath the surf, the surface. Right. And I'm not going to mention the people who participate or the people who run it because I don't have their permission to do so. And there's still some negative connotations that are associated with psychedelic drugs and psychoactive substances. And, you know, if they want to out themselves, that's cool, but that's not what we're here to do today. So for me to get into an ayahuasca circle, I needed an in in the first place. And that happened to be my friend, Michael. And I'm mentioning his name because he's already um, outed himself and doesn't really care. And, you know, to that end, you know, he directed me to, um, you know, the people that I needed to speak to and sort of have a conversation around what my intentions were. You know, I had to answer some questions um, online, um, complete like a quick little survey. Um, You know, I had to give some some health information I had to uh, read through some information around what to expect, um, you know, what I should bring, what I should not bring. And only then would I be accepted in and have the right to sort of buy my experience. Okay. So you kind of have to go through several gatekeepers and you want to know someone who's connected to someone uh, who's connected to the circle in order to get into the circle. So at the end of the day, it's one of those kind of situations. Now there are retreats that have popped up all over the world. And if you want to travel and if you, you know, want to spend, uh, if you want to spend more money on the experience, um, because you don't have access locally to something like that, that's certainly an option as well. So don't think that, you know, if it's not something that's happening locally in your hometown, that it's inaccessible. Just if you poke around for ayahuasca retreats online, you'll find plenty of them. And again, like I said, uh, the prevalence of this is sort of becoming almost mainstream in a way. And so from this point, it's a matter of setting the date, right? So once I'm sort of invited in and approved, it's all right, what dates can I come? It's, you know, here's the cost for me. I did two nights. I did two nights of ceremony and the cost was $180 per night. So this isn't exactly the cheapest thing in the world to do. Um, and again, it's ceremony. There are a lot of people involved. Um, you know, space is involved. Um, production production is involved. So there's quite a bit of expense that goes into creating it. And, um, you know, so you're going to pay a little bit more for that experience. But the, the reality is that once you, um, come in and you've, you've paid your money, you are then instructed on what to do next, right? So in this case, in this particular circle, half the money was paid up front and then half the money was paid in cash upon arrival. And my experience was, again, not having done an ayahuasca ceremony or 
uh, circle before, I had no idea what to expect other than what I had read. So a couple of things going in that, you know, were presented to me. And the first one is the diet. Okay. So there is a specific ayahuasca diet that's recommended that you should try, or at least try to eat, you know, at least a week to two weeks before going into the ceremony. And depending on which, you know, websites you visit, or depending on which, uh, you know, shaman you receive information from, you're going to get a laundry list of things. But basically what it comes down to is it's sort of like a basic vegetarian diet. Um, the big killers are you don't want to consume pork um, or red meat, you know, seven to seven days to 14 days before and after the ceremony. So basically you want to avoid like blatant displays of salts, blatant displays of sugar, um, pork, red meat, um, caffeine, um, like animal fats, dairy products, stuff like that. Um, you can have oils, but you want to use, you know, plant-based oils like olive oil very sparingly. And, um, you want to avoid spicy food because you will either taste that on its way back up or get some not so great feelings as it comes out the other end. And you want to avoid, you know, caffeine, carbonated drinks and that sort of thing. You also want to avoid things like alcohol, and you want to avoid sex for seven days before and seven days after. And again, this just has to do with the ceremonial aspect of energy. You're dealing with, again, the madre, you know, mother ayahuasca and the spirits that are associated with this, uh, the energies that they bring and the energies that you bring. So uh, the sex, you're, you're on a sex diet and you're also going to be on a a bullshit diet, right? Like, and what I mean by that is like, stop watching shitty TV shows, stop buying into the neighbor's gossip, you know, disconnect from the drama at work, you know, all those sorts of things. Start getting a little bit quieter and a little bit more introspective so that you come in the right mindset, right? Now, like the big killer is like pork and, um, you know, blatant displays of like dairy or fat, that sort of thing. What I ate going into this experience was basically what I eat every day. I didn't have to change much. Um, I did eat meat all the way up to like 48 hours prior, 36 hours prior. Um, but I was eating, um, you know, just like light poultry. I was eating turkey, um, small bits of turkey with like an enormous uh, leafy green salad with olive oil. And that's basically what I eat every day anyway. So I didn't have to change much. And, um, going in to the ceremony, I stopped eating 24 hours before the first drink of ayahuasca. And I just did this because of the fact that, you know, there's a, there's a high possibility that you can throw up and I didn't want to have a lot of stuff in my guts or in my stomach if that were going to be the case. So I just, I just fasted, um, all Thursday basically and uh, went into the ceremony um, in a fasted state. Now, they ask you to fast about, you know, five to seven hours before the ceremony starts. Normally, ayahuasca is drank the first time around 8 p.m., and the ceremony goes all night. So, you know, if you stop eating around, you know, somewhere between 12 and 2, you know, or 1 and 3, you're going to be fine. You, you know, you won't have a lot of stomach contents uh, if you do need to purge or throw up. And, you know, that's going to be kind of helpful. So anyway, going into the ceremony, you know, like I said, I showed up, I read through all the information. Uh, what I took with me was 
um, a pair of shorts. I wore a pair of shorts. Uh, I wore a light-colored shirt. It's recommended that you wear white clothing. Again, this comes back to the ceremonial and spiritual aspect of the uh, of the experience in that dark colors are said to attract evil spirits, whereas light colors are, are said to attract, you know, the good, the positive, you know, the, the spirits that are there to help you, right, to help you along your journey. And so I wore, I didn't, I don't even own a white shirt, so I just wore like the lightest shirt I had, which was like a gray shirt and uh, shorts, and um, I took a pillow. Now, when I got there, they had um, these really light scarves that, you, you know, you find like in a, like a yoga shop, a yoga studio, and they had pillows, right? Like a few um, yoga style pillows set up, but um, I brought my own pillow. I didn't bring anything to cover up with because again, it's Arizona in the summertime and I felt like, you know, I'd be warm enough. I did end up getting one of the little tiny little scarf things that they give out uh, and I did end up using it. The temperature in the room does change drastically uh, with the AC on or off. Um, again, being in Arizona, this was taking place inside because of the heat. And, you know, with a good 30 people in the room, you know, temperature is going to fluctuate drastically depending on what's happening in there. So, again, you know, it's a, it's something that you want to travel light to for the most part. You don't need much. Um, if you get cold, you want to take something to cover up. But other than that, take something that you're going to be comfortable laying on, basically. Now, when I go in, there are mattresses you know, these tiny little foam mattresses set up along the edge of the room. And basically as you come in, you're greeted and, you know, you just kind of pick your spot and you know, just pick your spot wherever you feel like you're going to be most comfortable. Um, when I arrived, most of the spots were taken. So I found a corner spot and I just happened to be beside someone I knew, which was bonus. And, um, you know, so I was able to catch up, uh, with my friend, you know, as we waited for the ceremony to start and we kind of went from there. And, you know, as we're talking, I was kind of picking his brain and just, you know, sort of trying to understand what would be happening over the course of the night, because my initial thought was this was going to be, you know, more of a meditative experience. But what I came to, to, to learn as I walked in the room and, you know, music is going, there are instruments, there's drums. Um, again, the ceremonial aspect of it kicks in and there's not a single point in the night beyond maybe you know, 10 minutes here or there where there's any silence in the room. So, you know, if you are one of those people who is impacted greatly, you know, by auditory stimulus, then you're going to want to take something, you know, like earplugs that you can use to sort of, you know, dampen that down as my experience on the first night was very different than my experience on the second night. And it was largely because I I took earplugs into the second night and I'll explain a little bit more about that. But as I caught up with, you know, my friend, I was basically just asking him, Hey, you know, any advice for a first timer, you know, and his whole thing was, you know, just surrender to it. Right. And I loved this line because this is so true of anything that we're going into that we're unfamiliar with, you know, or that might frighten us in some way, shape or form is we just want to let go of, of control, right? We want to let go and just allow things to be what they're going to be. And this is something that we don't do a lot of in day-to-day -day life, right? Because we're so structured. You know, everything has to happen on such a stringent deadline in most cases. And letting go is not something that is familiar 
You know, it's just not something, it's not the way that a lot of folks live their lives, especially not in the modern world where, you know, Google Calendar is constantly, you know, dinging on your phone and telling you, hey, you know, you've got five appointments today, you know, be cognizant of this and control yourself and control this and control this situation so that you're constantly where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so from that context, there's, you know, there's this sort of understanding of what it means to surrender and let go but there's not really a practice in modern life of what it means to let go. And, you know, this, of course, if you do practice meditation, is something that will come in extremely handy um, in that you'll have a basic knowledge of what it means to just be as opposed to, you know, being active, which is a completely different frame of reference, right? So as, you know, the night wore on, you know, several people came around to introduce themselves, you know, everyone is, was just incredibly accommodating, uh, super generous, you know, very sweet people, good people. Um, you know, I was talking to the woman on my right and she came, you know, with a list of intentions. And this is something that, um, uh, I think is really important anytime you do anything new. And that is, she showed up with a list of, you know, like five or six intentions that she wanted to address as the medicine took her over. And, you know, and so I was asking her about, you know, hey, what what are some of the things that you're working on? Or what are some of the things that you would like to have addressed? You know, when she was talking about self-worth issues, she was talking about uh, physical trauma as a child, um, you know, sexual abuse. Uh, She was talking about all of these experiences that you know, are not foreign to any of us really. Uh, and that the personal development world does a good job of addressing in, in a great, in great numbers, along with the psychological world when people can afford that service. Right. But so many people can't, um, that, you know, it's good to see, you know, something like this crop up and and there is evidence that this does help people through trauma. There's good evidence that it helps people through depression, uh, PTSD, as you'll see, if you go and you Google some of the ayahuasca, um, you know, based documentaries, you'll see personal accounts from veterans, from other people who experienced traumas and how it sort of changed, allowed them to change perspectives. And I'll talk more a little bit about that as we, as I go further in, but you know, we're basically just sitting there catching up. Um, and then one of the guys comes around, you know, he's collecting the balance of your payment and telling you what to expect and, you know, asking if you have any questions, you know, just trying to make you feel comfortable. And, you know, by the time this is all said and done, you know, eight o'clock starts approaching and then it's time to start getting serious about what's about to take place. So the room, you know, falls quiet. Um, the shaman takes the lead, pulls out a little book and starts going through, you know, Hey, here's what you can expect. Here's how to deal with, you know, the purge. Here's how to deal with noise in the room. Here's how to, you know, experience, um, the music, you know, here's what's going to happen as we go around the room. Um, you know, just all these different little sorts of little, uh, I guess you'd say cues and keys, um, to, to the experience itself and the expectations that they have, um, you know, as a leadership group for the people in the room, right? And, you know, I'm in there, there's quite a few new people in there and everyone who's new is quite nervous. 
I think I had asked so many questions at this point that I didn't really have any nerves. I didn't really have any excitement. I was just kind of ready to get going. I, had, I remember having just a sense of calm. But when you do walk into the room and you see, you know, 30 little mattresses, you know, kind of sat around the edge of the room and beside each mattress is a white plastic bucket with a roll of toilet paper in it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like this huge foreboding thing that's like, okay, well, you're going to have you know, some pretty serious retching happening here a minute. You're going to be purging some shit, right? And um, just in case, everyone here has a bucket, right? So, you know, so a lot of the newer people were freaking out about the fact that, you know, this is a potential uh, happenstance and it's something that, you know, unnerves a lot of people. I had just made up my mind after I talked to my buddy that, you know, whatever happens, I'm going to submit to it. And, you know, if, if if I feel the need to, you know, to purge, out of either end, I'm just going to let it happen. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to try and, you know, play tough guy or whatever. I'm just going to let it be right. And then let go of it and then see what happens. So the shaman finishes his spiel about what to expect. Um, you know, the lights start to dim. Um, he lights up a cigarette and basically blows smoke into the four cardinal directions to kind of start the ceremony, right? It's sort of a signaling of the start of the ceremony. And then, you know, offers a blessing and offers a gratitude again, because this is ceremonial, right? So we're going through all of the ceremonial paces of this particular experience. And as he sat back down, you know, the team, the leadership team in the room, they begin to pull out the tea and to start to arrange it around and in front of this little podium where the uh, shaman was sitting right? And so the instruction was we come up three by three. So we come up three at a time with three people waiting behind. And uh, there's a little shot glass that he uses to measure about 30 milliliters of the brew of the tea. And you start with that, right? So the first drink goes down around, you know, like I said, around eight o'clock, eight 30, we might've gotten started a little late that first night because we had some newer people and we had to go through a bunch of stuff. So we started, um, you know, in, in short order, Everyone's received their first drink of the night. Again, about 30 milliliters. Now, when I go up again, never having done this, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what the, the flavor was going to be, what the scent was going to be. Um, and you know, so there's that fear of, all right, is this going to be so horrible? You know, I'm not really, I don't really have the strongest stomach. Is this going to be so horrible that the minute I put it in my mouth, I'm just going to spit it out all over this guy in his white coat. Right. (laughs) And so, you know, so there's that fear but then as I sat down and, you know, I, I approached, um, the drink itself and, you know, he blesses the drink, the shaman blesses the drink and blows smoke into the rim of the glass and then hands it to you, right? Seals it with the smoke. And then you receive that and then it's time for you to drink, right? And there's, that's all it is. So at the first time I drank, it honestly, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad at all. And, um, the, the, the actual scent of the drink was much, much, I found more offensive than the flavor of the drink. And, um, no one really could describe the drink to me very well. So I'm going to, I'm going to describe it to you. So if you guys have ever had, if you're like, I, I live in a house with a wino, my wife is a total wine and food snob and she's basically tasted everything there is to taste. So fortunately I have the, 
I have her to leverage and, and her to thank for this. But if you've ever had a mead, um, you know, which is like an alcoholic honey based beverage, or if you've ever had a port, which is like a really sweet syrupy type dessert wine, it's like a mead mixed with a port. And then when you swallow on the finish, you get like this sort of bitter chocolate flavor. And so it's not the most pleasant of drinks. Uh, mead in and of itself is nasty. Port, you know, it's pretty nasty as well. These are things that you would sip, um, you know, back in the day. It's not very common anymore. Although I am told there's a, a meadery that just opened up in Prescott and that it's becoming a, a very popular thing here in the States. So be that as it may, if you could imagine those flavors or if you've tasted those flavors and you put them all together, that's kind of what it reminded me of. There's definitely hints of all of that in there. And um, it definitely takes a bit of a strong palate to get it down, but it's certainly not, it's not the worst thing I've ever put in my mouth. Honestly, I think if you've had NyQuil, you've tasted much, much worse. Honestly, uh, for me personally, I'd, I'd much rather drink ayahuasca than NyQuil any day. And th that was just my in interpretation of it. Now, as I went back to, you know, to sit in my space, I did notice there were several people who had to cover their mouth um, to keep from throwing it back up immediately. Um, so again, this is just going to come down to personal preference and personal, you know, sort of tastes. But um, overall, most people were able to down it, no problem. Just a quick shot down, you're done. Um, there's citrus there that you can put in your mouth and sort of get the flavor out. I just popped a citrus, a little piece of citrus in my mouth, swallowed that, and then rinsed out with a little water. Good to go, no problem. And then as everyone finishes up, you, you come back to your spot. And then it's time to just kind of sit and wait, right? Now, as this is happening, music is playing. And the music is, for by my standards, extremely loud for such a small room. <clears throat> and so my experience of the first night was after the first hour or so, the music started to really wear on my ears. Um, my ears were actually getting a little fatigued from the sound of the music. And the other thing that it's important to know as a first-timer is... First timers very seldom, or it's very difficult, or it's very uncommon, depending on who you talk to, for a first timer to actually have the, the ayahuasca, the DMT within the ayahuasca to actually have an effect on you, or to have any sort of strong effect. So unlike other psychedelic drugs, I'm told, um, again, this is my only experience, so I don't really have anything to compare it to, um, the ayahuasca experience is very short-lived, so you're talking like 20 to 30 minutes max um, for, you know, for any sort of hallucinogenic effect, right? For me, I was lucky enough that first, uh, first night to actually have some visions. And again, this was extremely short lived, you know, maybe three to five minutes and it was nothing earth shattering. So like for me, it was like geometric shapes coming together, uh, moving in and around and, and changing shape, um, sort of before my eyes, if you will. And the interesting thing about the whole process is that the first drink did nothing, did absolutely nothing um, in terms of creating visuals for me. But 30 minutes in, you know, 30 minutes into, or maybe even less, maybe 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes in, after that first round of drink went down, there were at least 10 people in the room who were like retching their guts out. So, and you can hear that, right? And that's one of those things that's sort of contagious. So when that started happening, I started worrying, all right, well, now is this going to be 
contagious, right? Like, this is going to be like a yawn where one person over here yawns and the next 10 people in a row yawn or this person throws up. So now everybody in the room is going to throw up. So you're in tight space, close quarters. You're going to hear that, right? The music doesn't really disguise it. Um, the music is in a way, it's kind of like, I think it's sort of meant to allow you to have your own experience. It's supposed to, it's meant to allow the visuals to change with the music as well, your mentality to change with the music. Um, but when it came to like the music mixed with the experience of people like, you know, throwing up and retching really loudly, it's kind of like when you put deodorant on and you already stink, right? Like it doesn't disguise anything or cover anything up. It just makes it worse. And so for me, like as someone who's very sensitive to auditory stimulus, it was too loud in there for me to actually have a sort of meaningful experience around that first cup. So, you know, after the first cup goes down, you know, you wait a good hour, hour and a half, and you just kind of sit back and chill, right? You're going to find out really quickly if you're going to throw up, um, and you're going to find out quickly if the DMT is going to take any sort of, um, you know, or have any sort of effect on you. And so in my case, you know, nothing. Now the second drink is coming around, right? And so a lot of times it's recommended that newer people, you know, kind of take it easy. But, um, you know, when I was talking to the shaman beforehand, his comment to me was, well, you know, you're kind of a bigger guy, so, you know, you should probably take a little bit bigger dose, that sort of thing, which makes sense. And, you know, so when the second uh, cup was offered, you know, I took it and it was at this point, maybe about 30 to 45 minutes after the second cup. And after getting sort of really still and quiet in the corner, you know, as much as I could, that I had a little bit of visual stimulus come down. And again, it was like, it was really sort of bland coloration, like grays and blacks. And I just basically saw geometric patterns sort of flowing and they would start in like a solid and then they would come into many, many pieces and then they would come back together as a solid and then flow off and change into a different shape and then go into different pieces. Um, so I felt, you know, when that happened, I felt sort of, uh, like this feeling of gratitude that I got to experience that because again, a lot of first timers don't have any, uh, effect, uh, from the ayahuasca itself. So, I was feeling good and feeling fortunate at that. The other thing that came over me was this feeling of comfort. And the feeling of comfort was one of, if you've ever been extremely tired or, you know, not even really tired, but just very content and you've gone and laid down on your couch or you've gone and laid down, you know, in some comfortable spot in your house or your bed or whatever the case may be. And that spot that you landed in just sort of cradles you. And it just feels like the most perfect place that your body could be. And you don't want to move, right? Like you just literally do not want to move because you are so comfortable. There was this experience that I had of, of this feeling where I was so comfortable that I did not want to move, but it was bigger than that. It was like amplified. It felt like there was a weight to this cradling that I, I was experiencing, almost like I was being held down but it wasn't negative. It was like, you know, like being under your grandmother's heaviest quilt and just super comfortable, you know, that 50 pound quilt that, you know, probably sat, uh, you know, it's been passed down from the family from generation to generation that, you know, has that really funky smell to it. It's like being under a weight of covers like that. 
And I literally didn't want to move. I didn't want to speak. I didn't want to move my eyelids. I didn't want to move my fingers. Um, after the second, uh, drink went down, you know, people were coming around to check on you and people were bumping into me. Um, and at this point, you know, they were, they were wanting to offer me, um, hape, which is a type of tobacco that is basically blown into your nostril. And I had no interest in, in trying this. And so when they would bump me, I just didn't even move. Like I literally did not want to move at all under any circumstances. I just wanted to be in that space. And, you know, they say that ayahuasca gives you what you need, not what you want. So maybe I went in there wanting, you know, to see jaguars in the jungle, but what I got was geometric shapes and like comfort because in my daily life, you know, I've been so busy you know, building with hard water and working with the team and working on the gym and working on my marriage and working on me that I haven't really taken time to rest. I haven't really taken time to, you know, sort of be in a space where I could just let go and relax. And so maybe, you know, if there's truth to the fact that you get what you need, not what you want, maybe that's what was happening for me. And, you know, by the time it was all said and done, that was my biggest sort of experience of the effects of the DMT. And this ended up lasting for, I don't know, a good, maybe 30 to 45 minutes, that feeling. Um, so it was probably prompted by the, by the ayahuasca or the DMT within the ayahuasca, but continued by the fact that I didn't want it to end. Right. So this was something that was, um, was really, really cool. And definitely I think would have been magnified had I, been in like a deeper or quieter space, you know, not being bumped or not being sort of prodded to do something else or be something else. And so at the end of that first night, um, you know, the ceremony comes to a close as the sun rises. So we've been up all night for the most part. Um, you know, if you're sensitive to sound, you're not sleeping at all that night. There were people who found a way to sleep through that. I'm not sure how, but if you're sensitive to sound, you're up all night. So we've been up now for um, you know, it's about four thirty, five 5 o'clock in the morning. The sun is coming up. Ceremony is ending and it's time to get up and sort of get the energy going into the day. And that generally starts with like drums and rattles and more music. Right. And then an offering of fruit. And, um, you know, so at this point I hadn't eaten for 36 hours and I was debating whether or not I should eat at all. Uh, but my buddy who was with me said, you know, you should probably eat because you're going to need your strength for tonight. Because again, the second ceremony was going to be back to back with this particular uh, night. So, so I went ahead and I had some watermelon and, you know, sort of took that all in and ended up, you know, heading home. Um, I stopped at the store, picked up some flowers for wifey because I missed her last night. And I uh, brought those in and went and crawled into bed with her. It was about I guess it was about seven o'clock or so when I got home and I ended up sleeping until, you know, like early afternoon. Um, I did eat an RX bar, which has eggs in it. And I did have fruit juice, which was recommended. So the only thing I had, um, that wasn't like a plant sort of a thing would have been the egg whites that are in the RX bar. And, um, yeah, so that was it. And so then it was all about getting ready for the next day, the next ceremony. 
And, um, again, I chose to do both nights because again, the first time is supposed to be very, very mild and mellow. Even people who were there for their, you know, umpteenth time, they were saying basically, you know, the first night's always the mellow night. Right. So having, uh, having that knowledge, um, going in and having that knowledge validated, I felt good about going in and getting the second night done. So that afternoon, you know, I did some work around the house and just kind of took it easy. Um, I didn't eat anything, um, since that breakfast that I had that morning. So again, I went in, um, fasted for about 14 hours on the second night. And this time I brought earplugs with me so that I could tone down the noise in the room. So second night, same sort of a thing, right? Only, you know, the few people, a few different people are there because, um, there were some one nighters that were no longer there and some one nighters who did show up and the ceremony begins the same way. The smoke to the four cardinal directions, the invitation to drink starts around eight o'clock and, you know, first glass goes down. Um, and again, I'm wearing earplugs this time. So this time I am in a little bit more of a, like a calmed mental state. Like the music is, was really loud last time and it had the effect of sort of keeping me agitated as opposed to keeping me calm. So the, the other takeaway from the first night was I'm not a big fan of crowds, crowded rooms, and I'm not a big fan of noise. <laughs> and so here I was putting myself in a situation with both. And, you know, I was telling my buddy this story and, you know, the reality of it is, is when you choose into something, no matter what that thing is, you don't get to choose into just the good stuff, right? You don't get to choose into just the things you like. You choose into the whole experience. So in this particular case, you know, surrendering to the fact that I was going to be in a crowded room and I was going to be in a noisy environment was just part of the lesson that I needed to learn to be in this space. And from that place, I created, I created value and I created significance around me being there, right? Because there was a growth opportunity for me. So second night, I toned it down a little bit with the noise by using the earplugs. Um, same sort of thing went down. Again, like I said, first drink goes off around eight o'clock. Um, my other buddy, um, you know, Michael was there on the second night. Uh, we did a little drum circle action going into the event, which was a lot of fun. And again, kind of set the tone for what we're about to experience. It touched on the tribal and ceremonial nature of the plant medicines and what, you know, what that's all about, the spiritual side of things and what that's all about. And so we go in, get that first drink going. Um, my stomach felt a little bit upset that second night. Again, all I'd had in to eat in over 48 hours was a few pieces of watermelon, an RX bar and some juice. So, you know, basically fasting almost two days at this point. So I think largely the, the stomach uh, feeling that I had was just from my body, like trying to digest the ayahuasca as food or either, you know, grumbling for food, um, in that space, but it wasn't anything like overwhelming. And, you know, the, the recommended way to do the drink is to sit up throughout the effect of the first drink and lay back with the second drink, right? So first drink I sat up, I just found a comfortable spot against the wall with my pillow and I sat up in sort of, you know, this sort of use, uh, I'm sorry, loose like yoga pose or yoga, yogi pose, I guess you'd say, and just kind of waited and meditated on my intentions and just waited to see if anything would happen. Because again, 
from the previous night, there still should be some of the ayahuasca in my system. It takes a little while for that to clear out. So there's the possibility that it might have a stronger effect on that first drink. For me, this wasn't the case. That didn't happen for me at all. Nothing happened at all other than just me meditating for a good hour or so. And again, lights are low. Um, you know, music is blaring. I have my headphones, or my headphones, my earplugs in. So the music is at a, at a good level for me. It didn't block out the noise. It just made the music at like a lower level, which for me was good. And then the second drink rolls around. And of course, you know, I'm definitely going to take the second drink because I've experienced no effects of the DMT or the ayahuasca at this point. I take the second drink. And for me, the experience was even shorter than the first night. So the first night I had, you know, the geometric shape thing happening. I had that little cradling, holding, sort of super comfortable feeling happening. And on the second night, both of those things happened again, but this time they were even shorter. The visions were probably only maybe, you know, maybe two or three minutes at most. And then that feeling of comfort was maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And then from there, you know, the effects were pretty much worn off. The only thing that I experienced in terms of purging, like I said, you can purge from either end. I did have a quick little bout with diarrhea on the first night, but it was like, you know, so mild as to not even consider it, um, you know, a problem. Um, and it's not something that like crept up on me. Like you can feel it, you know, you can feel it. I just got up and walked to the bathroom, used the bathroom and you know, Hey, I'm back. No problem. And that was my only you know, my only sort of bout with the purge. Now, again, they say that, you know, your experience can be different um, no matter how many times you take advantage of the ceremony, no matter how many times you've drank ayahuasca, your experience can be different, you know? So even people who've been in there, like I said, 20, 30, 40 times, you know, they still held tight to their buckets. It's not like you're immune. But the thing that I want to drive home is I think a lot of people throw up because they think they're supposed to. I think that's a, a seed that's sort of planted by, you know, kind of the market. I think a lot of people who do throw up view it as a badge of honor, <clears throat> excuse me. And the reality of it is you may not throw up, right? You may not. I had no issues. I didn't have any gag reflex or any retching at all. Um, I've seen, you know, during the course of doing my research, I um, ran into several people who've never purged and done ayahuasca six or seven or eight times. You know, so it's not a foregone conclusion that you're going to throw up all over the place or shit your pants. It just means that it's a possibility. And I think what a lot of people do is they go in with the expectation that, you know, well, my buddy, you know, puked all over the wall. So that means I'm going to have to throw up too. And that's just not the case. Um, I think your expectation is going to create your reality in some case. And I went in there with the expectation that if, you know, mother IS said, Hey, Jason, you know what? Throw up then I was going to throw up. If she said, Hey, you're okay. Then I was going to be, Hey, I'm okay. I didn't go in there with the expectation that, you know what, I'm going to down this substance and then I'm going to throw it back up. I just surrendered to the experience and let the experience be my guide. Now, a lot of people did throw up in the room, but it was such a small part of the experience that I think it gets overplayed. And because most Westerners view the throwing up as a negative experience, you know, that's, and it's a badge of honor, you know, something they survived as opposed to something that they experienced, that that's one of the aspects that they bring out of it. So if you do plan on, um, you know, having an ayahuasca experience, 
you know, eat the diet as closely as you can. Um, that includes the sexual diet, includes the negative information diet, do all of that stuff. Right. But by the same token, when you arrive, don't go in there thinking that because your buddy, you know, threw up all over his neighbor, that that's going to be your experience. It doesn't have to be, I would just set my expectation to surrender. I think that's the best advice. And if you're called to throw up, just throw up, you know, let it be, don't make it a big stink, just do it, get it done and then go on about your experience. Um, but if not, then that's cool too. It doesn't mean you did something wrong, right? There's no way to, there's no way to fuck this up. You go in, you have your experience, your neighbor has his or hers and everybody walks away with whatever they're supposed to get from it. Right. And so that was it. Right. So we, again, the hape was offered, um, the, the, uh, one of the girls who was working in support, she was so sweet and just so gentle. You know, I'm laying there having my little, you know, ayahuasca experience, you know, I've got my eye mask on and I'm just kind of laid down chilling. And I feel, I feel this little, like this little brush against my forearm. Right. (laughs) And, you know, this person is wanting to, wanting me to wake up and she's wanting me to, to give her my attention because she wants me to try hape. So hape is part of the ceremonies a lot of times. And, you know, it's, again, it's totally something that you can do or not completely optional. It wasn't something that interested me. I wanted to have the experience of just the ayahuasca. It wasn't like I was afraid of, of the hape, but I wanted to, to know what just ayahuasca would do for me or to me so that I would have a frame of reference. Now, next time I'll probably, you know, try the hape experience or rape, some people call it. And basically what that is, is it's a very finely ground tobacco or mixture of tobacco with other things. And it's blown up your nostrils. So there's a pipe. um, One end of the pipe receives the dust, basically. And then the, um, the person administering blows in the other end of the pipe as they put it up your nose and it sits in your sinuses, right? So it's absorbed through your sinuses. And so up one nostril, you wait a couple minutes and then up the other nostril. And then you have that experience. And the, the girl that was, you know, wanting to, wanting me to try it, she was so sweet and she was, you know, trying to convince me to, to do this thing and telling me how, how she, you know, was going to be very gentle and make sure that this was a good experience for me, which I completely appreciated. Um, but it just wasn't something I was interested in. So, you know, next time it'll probably be something I try, as I said before, but it wasn't something that interested me that night. And so I just listened to her describe it, you know, listened to her take on what it was to try to learn from her experience to try to learn from what she takes away from it. And she was very generous with her information. And like I said, very kind to me and very open uh, in sharing, you know, what it, what it meant to her and how it complements the ayahuasca experience. So, you know, it was really cool all the way around. You know, like I said, people were great. Uh, when we, when we sort of, um, broke in the morning again, you know, it's fruit and it's soup, um, to sort of break that fast, sort of get some, you know, to get some nutrients in your body. Again, for me, I had, I hadn't eaten hardly anything at this point, um, in 48 hours. So I was ready to eat, but, um, you know, by the time this rolled around, you know, I felt really good about my experience. I felt, um, you know, I felt, I felt a sense of pride just for stepping outside myself 
And again, this is again, part of expansion and coming back to the personal development world. You know, there's a time and a place to try anything that makes sense for you, right? From a responsible place. And that doesn't mean you should go out and jump off the tallest building thinking you can fly. It just means that you should take reasonable risks or, or challenge yourself to do something outside of your daily experience so that you have something perspective-wise that you can bring to the world that you didn't have the ability to bring before, right? So whether or not, you know, like I said before, I saw, you know, Mother Aya and a jaguar and, you know, 15 jungle animals winking at me from behind a tree, or I had nothing happen, at the very least, I can look at this and I say, okay, well, I've lived 46 years of my life never doing anything in this vein and I chose to do something outside of myself. And because I did that, I expanded. And this expansion, this form of growth allows you to create new novel experiences, right? New and novel experiences. And it helps you prevent that sort of you know, rut that people fall in. Um, you know, there's a, there's this idea that people are left brained or right brained and, you know, there's some truth to that, but the greater truth is that you're, you are novel brained or new brained and old brained. And when novel experience comes in, um, and doesn't have anything to sort of lay a pattern against and recognize, then it has to be processed and it forces your, the older, the, the part of your brain that remembers, it forces that part of your brain to get active and to start to process and to create new patterns of behavior and new patterns of experience. So the novel experience leads to knowledge and growth that you wouldn't otherwise have. And what happens a lot of times when we hit, you know, middle age is it's like, okay, well, every day is the same. Every meal is the same. Every interaction is the same. The job is the same you know, the days are the same, the house is the same, like everything is the same. And before you know it, there's just nothing in your life that you feel excited by, or you feel, you know, sort of drawn to in a big way or passionate about, right? So having new experience, having novel experience reawakens your brain, you know, that, that right side of your brain that pulls in the new and that left side of your brain that remembers, right? You want to activate those two parts of your brain so that you can have some adventure in your life, which is another element of the Hardwater brand, right? I don't want anyone to grow old feeling like they've got regrets because they sat and did the same thing for 30 fucking years. That's not life. That's not living. So if, you know, hopefully I've been able to give you guys some, you know, background on, you know, why I chose to do this. Hopefully I've been able to give you guys, some, you know, like a quick overview of how the ceremonies are run, um, what to expect, you know, how it is related to spiritual practice from the Amazon, from Peru, from centuries old um, cultures and civilizations. And now that you have that, you can take that and make a little bit more of an informed decision based on what you want to do for yourself. Now, I, I will say this, like if you, there's nothing about this ceremony that's necessary. Nothing about this ceremony is required for you to take the next step and do anything. Um, the visions that I saw, um, were probably less powerful than visions I've seen when I've meditated in a deep state. So you can definitely get to that place through meditation. You can definitely get through that place, um, uh, of self-awareness through introspection from really putting some energy and effort in you. This is not what I would think or what I think of as a shortcut, 
but it's a different perspective, right? It's a different way of seeing yourself, a different way of coming at personal development, growth and expansion. And from that place um, and having some curiosity, I feel like it's a new tool that I can add to the tool belt and it's something else I can leverage as I go forward into my life. So with that said, guys, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to do your own research and thank you for listening today. And I will see you guys, or I guess speak to you guys in the next episode. Have a great one. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing, and by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.